Welcome to Manifold. My guest today is Dominic Cummings, the former chief advisor to UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson. Dom graduated from Oxford with a first in ancient and modern history. He ran the campaign to keep the UK out of the Euro, thereby preserving pound sterling, and ran the Vote Leave campaign that led to Brexit. In fall 2019, he engineered a landslide general election victory for the Tories and for Boris Johnson. Cummings was portrayed by Benedict Cumberbatch in the 2019 film Brexit, The Uncivil War, and in the television political puppet show Spitting Image, Cummings' puppet was portrayed as a creepy alien with a pulsating head who drools at the prospect of eating Boris Johnson's baby. Dom, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Steve. Well, we've known each other for a long time, I think well over 10 years. And I want to start early in your life. What did the world look like to Dominic Cummings in his early 20s? And what are the main differences between your worldview then and now? My goodness. Well, in my early 20s, I was at Oxford, and then I left to go to Russia in December 1994, just days, I think, before the first war in Chechnya started. I guess the main thing, if I look back to those days, is just how amazingly ignorant I was about almost everything, but didn't realize it. And now... I'm still amazingly ignorant, but I've got a better idea of what I'm ignorant about, particularly around, particularly, I think almost everything I thought about politics then was was sort of embarrassingly wrong. And at that point, I, were you even thinking about politics? Because as I understand it, when you went to Russia, you were actually trying to start a business. Yeah, I didn't really know what I was doing in Russia other than I sort of went there, well, I finished Oxford in summer 94 and I'd loved doing Russian history and I'd loved write, reading Russian literature and I just couldn't really think of any kind of job to do. There was nothing that I particularly fancied doing. All my friends pretty much were looking for some kind of job in the city in finance or investment banking or management consultancy or something like that and I didn't fancy it. So I ended up going to Russia really just because I couldn't think of anything better to do. And also I'd had a brilliant tutor, now dead, a guy called Norman Stone at Oxford, who by chance had got to know various KGB people in the very early 90s and had got access to all of these amazing archives in Moscow that turned out to exist that people didn't really know existed. So there were these huge buildings full of all kinds of things like, you know, some of them famously turned out to be Hitler's actual skull and the sofa on which he was killed and all that sort of thing, along with all these amazing archives looted by the Nazis and then stolen by the NKVD in 1945. So he'd been involved with all of that, and I'd been talking to him about it at Oxford, and I just thought, well, I don't know what else to do, so I'll go to Moscow. It sounds like, sounds crazy, sounds fun. Was your tutor also a spook? As far as I know, not. I mean, people like that always end up you know, having dinner with people in the intelligence services and whatnot. So I'm sure he knew a lot of senior people and he certainly knew a lot of senior politicians, including Margaret Thatcher. But so I don't think, I don't think he was like lots of such people. He knew a lot of senior politicians, including Mrs. Thatcher. He definitely would have known a lot of intelligence services, 
people, but I personally doubt that he himself was in any formal sense with them. But he kindled your interest in Russia. Yes. And, and tell us, I mean, I, my understanding of that period of time in Russia was it was the Wild West and very rough and all kinds of crazy things were experienced by people who went there. Yeah, it was, it was a kind of crazy Wild West time. It was this sort of manic energy in places like Moscow. And politically, it was very weird because obviously you just had Yeltsin taking over, clubs of the Soviet Union, Yeltsin taking over. You had this kind of shift of a huge number of people from the intelligence services into organized crime. You know, it's kind of like imagining a huge faction of the CIA or MI6 suddenly going to work for the mafia. That's essential. I mean, that's literally what happened in, in, in Moscow. But some of the stories are kind of not... So Moscow is often portrayed as like this incredibly dangerous place then, generally, but that was not true. It wasn't dangerous in the sense of, you know, going to parts of South Africa or something or Rio are dangerous for a normal person. But it was incredibly dangerous if you were doing certain kinds of things. So if you were involved in industries like, particularly things like aluminium, certain kinds of metals, things like that, then it was extremely dangerous. But it wasn't the kind, but it didn't have the feel of an incredibly dangerous city generally. You know, when you read about the occupation in, say, Germany right after World War II ended, GIs would write about how they could get a beautiful German girl for half a pack of cigarettes or something like that. And was it like that in Moscow as well? Yeah, it kind of, it was sort of crazy like that because you had, you know, all over the country, you had some kind of economic collapse after 1991. And therefore, you know, a very rapid emergence of organized crime, these kind of what became known as kind of vodka auctions where Credit Suisse working with politicians slash mafia, essentially privatizing in inverted commas large parts of the Soviet economy, i.e. effectively handing it out to a bunch of insiders. So you have economic chaos, huge amounts of money being transferred really quickly. And all these families completely disrupted. So also all these, all these girls coming in from you know, every single part of Russia into Moscow, desperate to try and make some money in modeling or whatever. So yeah, it was a very bizarre, it was a very bizarre time with a bunch of Westerners there, a bunch of investment bankers and whatnot from the West, the political crooks, the mafia crooks, and all these amazing nightclubs. It was a very... It was, anybody who was there in, in that time remembers it as a very weird, a very weird experience that you never really have again. I, I wonder if there's probably some place in China that might be similar to that now, but I don't know where it would be. Well, not anymore since Xi Jinping, Xi Jinping took over. He cleaned it up a lot. But in the period of the early 2000s, you know, roughly until about 2014 or 2010, it was like that in China. I could tell you all kinds of crazy stories about things that went on. You know, I think the most colorful stuff I've read about Moscow in that period is by Matt Taibbi, who worked for a publication called the, I think it was called The Exile. Huh. And he was based in Moscow. I don't know if you guys ever crossed paths. No, didn't. So you were trying to start an airline. And is there an alternate universe where Dominic Cummings became some kind of aviation oligarch <laughs> in Russia? I don't think so. No, I don't think that was on the cards. But it was a very, it was a very interesting experience. You know how Charlie Munger always says that uh, about the power of incentives and how people don't understand how important they are. That whole thing really taught me that lesson. But essentially, there was a Western guy and some Russian guys who came up with the idea, which which seemed to be sound. The basic idea was 
Samara was this city, former closed city, big center for defense and aerospace technology in the Soviet Union, closed as in it didn't really appear on maps and you couldn't go there without special internal passports. And, you know, there was that category of place in the old Soviet Union. And the idea was this place will have to open up and therefore it should have an airline, which was sound as far as it went. But we went there trying to actually make it into a proper airline, Samara Airlines. But we then realized quite quickly that we were trying to make it into a proper airline so that it worked. Whereas the staff there were essentially trying to steal as much money as they possibly could from it, bankrupt it as fast as possible and move all the money offshore. And the idea of actually building something that would be great in 10, 20 years time just seemed completely insane to, the, to, to most of the people. And I think that's, you know, our mistake was made many times over by, by many Western institutions and many Western investment banks of various kinds. Yeah. You know, the same situation, the same conditions prevailed in China when they first opened up their economy. There was very low trust and everybody was focused on just making a quick buck. Yeah. And taken a few decades for the society to transition to, you know, probably still not quite at Western levels of trust, but higher trust and where people can plan for the long term and have some confidence that the institutions and the laws are stable. And I'm guessing you were in Russia at a time where none of that was present. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think there's also huge naivety, both amongst Western politicians and also a whole set of kind of economic advisors from Western institutions who went over there, made a lot of money themselves personally on advising or privatization, but without really understanding the culture and without understanding the, rea the realities on the ground. The privatization wasn't going to be something like, you know, the privatization of British gas or British airways. It was essentially just a bunch of insiders stealing things and giving it to their friends with a bunch with some investment where Western companies getting a cut out of it. But my, it seems to me, you'll understand this much better than me, but my impression is that Russia is not as crazy as it was in 1994 internally. It also isn't, did not evolve in the same way that China did. Obviously there's huge corruption still in both places, but there's also a lot more kind of long, longer term planning. I think that's possible in China now. Whereas in Russia, everything essentially kind of remained extremely chaotic and extremely arbitrary. And you just never quite know what on earth is going to happen from one day to the next. And if someone's just going to turn up at your offices and say, yeah, you don't actually own any of this anymore, you better leave. Yeah, I think if we talk a little bit later in our conversation about the Ukraine war and what's going on there, I think I've heard you say that, you know, Russia is still kind of a mafia regime. And I think that is plausible to me that it's not in the same situation as China, where, you know, the, the average person in China perceives it as, you know, the country is back after a, you know, period of decline and the institutions are solid and the country will just continue developing. And I'm not sure Russians really believe that about their own country right now. No, I'm sure not. I mean, when I arrived in 1994 and I would ask Russians then, you know, taxi drivers or whatever, what do you think of the government? They would use the phrase, the Russian phrase, mafia pravitelstvo, which basically means mafia government. And from talking to people who still go back there now, my impression is it has changed. It's less chaotic. There's not the same kind of competing power centers. But that's obviously because in one sense, like the chief mafia guy was Putin and he took over and put a lot of other people out of business. Yeah. The key transition is that once somebody takes over like that, can they make a transition to normalcy, some kind of more rule-based governance? And yeah. I think in China that's happened and, you know, we could de 
people would debate this with me, but you know, when you have a hundred million people in the communist party and somewhat rule-based processing of regulations and new information, you can have that sense of normalcy. At least I perceive that when I visit China and talk to people. Yeah, exactly. Because if you look at Russia now, you can see just even in, you know, in terms of how the Ukraine wars happened, Putin himself has got a lot of terrible shocks because a lot of investments, which people thought in Moscow would be made in building various things, turned out to be actually also stolen. And things which they thought had been built turned out to be Potemkin villages. Capabilities which they thought they'd modernized in the armed forces turned out not to really exist. You know, all kinds of documents have now leaked out and on the internet, whatnot, you can see, see some of that. So it's one of the ironies of that, think of that kind of mafia system that although people like Putin have extraordinary power in some ways, they're also weirdly vulnerable in other ways as well to the kind, to the sort of, to the inherent lies and corruption of the whole thing. Yeah. I imagine that, you know, war is one of these things where you can't fake it. You either have the capabilities or you don't. And so I'm sure he received a bunch of nasty shocks in the last year. Yeah, for sure. So let's go back to the young Dominic Cummings. So the airline didn't work out. You're back in the UK now. Yeah. And what gets you into politics? So I came back, I can't remember exactly when, but I think towards the end of 96, I then briefly thought about being a lawyer. I had an uncle who was one of the best lawyers in the country and worked on a lot of interesting constitutional questions. And I was interested in those, but then I realized that I just wasn't very good at it. And also I wasn't particularly interested in it really. And then I was talking to someone who, at the end of 1998, who just set up the organization to try and stop Blair taking us into the Euro. And he suggested that I go and work for that. And that's what I did. And that's how I got into politics. Now there's a, there's an iconic photo of you. I realize this might be a little embarrassing to you, but there's an iconic photo of a young Dominic Cummings with more hair, very handsome young man with a suit jacket on and I think smoking a cigarette. Was that taken around that time? I think it was taken roughly a year later. It was after, it was after this campaign had been going for a year or so. And I got to know a guy who was the kind of Time Magazine guy in London. And he was interested in what we'd done because everyone kind of assumed that Blair was going to prevail and that we'd be joining the Euro. And then suddenly the debate kind of changed. And he said he wanted to do something about it in Time magazine. And so I ended up meeting up with him. And I think that, and that's when, that's when those weird photos were taken. Those are great photos. They're almost like a, you know, Dom, young Dominic Cummings is James Bond kind of photos. Very much. And not, were they actually taken? Not, very much not like your that. wife might disagree, but were those taken at Trafalgar Square or has that been photoshopped to look that way? The what some of the ones I've seen look like they were taken there. Uh, I don't know if there's like people who photoshopped them later. The one, the ones that were taken at the time, it was kind of right about St. James's, St. James's Park and near Buckingham Palace, which is where our office was. I see. Yes. Yes. Great. So was that a moment of triumph? So you just said people didn't think you were going to be able to stop the UK from giving up the pound and joining the Euro. But you guys prevailed. So was that a moment of triumph where Time Magazine was taking your photo? No, it was before really it was clear that we'd won. It was At that point, it was clear that things had changed and that it was actually going to be competitive and that Blair might not get his own way. But it wasn't clear that we'd won. I don't think actually it was clear that we'd won until 9-11. Because after Blair won his second majority in the summer of 2001, it seemed like the whole battle was about to come 
raging back. So we sort of started off end of 1989 and we made a lot of progress and it caused Blair huge problems on the whole subject. But then he won the second majority, which was massive, and he clearly wanted to have another go at it. And everyone was gearing up for it. And the day of 9-11, he was actually due to give a speech in which he was basically going to kind of fire, fire the starting gun for the referendum campaign. These days, it would all have been kind of pre, pre-leaked on Twitter. But in those days, it wasn't. We all kind of knew what was happening, but it didn't really come out to the media. And then, of course, the speech was never given. He then got bustled back into a car and driven back to London when the planes hit. So one of the weird kind of effects of 9-11 was it basically killed the Euro campaign in Britain. I see. So was there, I mean, in the wake of Brexit, there's still tons of argument about whether it was good or bad or in short term, long term. But when the UK stayed out of the Euro, it just, I guess it, people just accepted it because it wasn't going to go any other way. Is that how it worked? I think it, so... As I've got older, I've realized that people that like arguments don't really change very much in politics, really almost not at all, but events do and perceptions of success and failure do. And I think what happened was in kind of 97, 98, 99, elite perceptions were the euro is going to happen. It's going to be a great triumph. It's going to be obvious that Britain is losing from not being part of it. The polls will all move and there'll just be this kind of inevitable process, similar to what happened with joining the EEC in the first place. But that didn't happen. The euro hit various problems and a lot of the promises that were predictions made by the euro campaign about what would happen simply didn't happen. And in various ways, the eurozone itself seemed to have various kind of economic problems. So when we didn't go in, elite opinion changed. But not really because people said, oh, right, okay, you guys were right and we were wrong. It just became part of the background conversation that, oh, well, like the timing doesn't really work and maybe we'll all come back to it in 10 or 15 years time or something. Yeah. I mean, my, my impression of the post-Brexit situation is that people's positions are so dug in that, you know, facts are not really going to change people's minds about whether it was a good outcome or a bad outcome. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that, I think in all sorts of ways, I mean, it didn't necessarily, it didn't have to turn out like this. A big part of the reason for it, obviously, is that because everything became so extremely botched by the Tory party and by the establishment after the referendum in summer 16, and then the country just kind of drove itself into, or rather Westminster drove the country into a cul-de-sac. It meant that on both sides, kind of passions flared. And it became much more a question of political identity. I mean, an interesting thing in polling now is that if you ask people about Brexit and about Leave and Remain, people, uh, Leave and Remain identities are much stronger in Britain now than political party identities are. And there's not really any equivalent of that in, in, in America where things are kind of hyper-polarized, but on, on party, on party basis. So. Yeah, I think certainly at the kind of insider level in Westminster. Yeah, there's two different sets of people and very few of them have really have changed their mind about it and how events play out. Well, neither side really is persuading the other, but then both sides see how the world's worked out subsequently as evidence that they were right. Yeah. Let me, uh, I, let me go back cause I, we're a little bit out of chronological order. So back to Brexit and vote leave and stuff like that in just a moment, but just going a little bit more chronologically. So you and I kind of got to know each other, I more or less over the internet. Yeah. And it was. I think some years before we met in person. Am I right about that? 
Yes. I mean, I was reading your blog from somewhere around about 2004, 2005, I think. But I don't think we actually physically met until Saifu in 2014. Yes. I'm, I think that one of the things that I blogged about from the very beginning, I, thought I started my blog in 20, 2004, was the housing crisis and predicting that we were going to have a financial crisis based on, you know, the housing bubble in the U.S., yeah, And I seem to recall you at the time you were working for Michael Gove and I think you actually tried to warn people in Westminster about an impending financial crisis. Is that correct? Well, I said forwarded on your blogs to a lot of people and said, because obviously you, know, you were writing about this way before it all happened and saying things like, well, my students are working on this stuff and they all say that their managers don't understand it and it can blow up. So I forwarded it on to various friends and family and also on to various media people. But obviously, no one paid any attention, which was an interesting lesson for me, actually, because it made me realize that there's this huge infrastructure of the modern media that's writing about all of this. But where did I find out about CDSs and CVOs? Well, it was on a blog written by a physicist who it's not his main job to, to be reporting on any of this stuff. That was a very good lesson to me. Yeah, my situation was I had former colleagues and students who worked in finance and you know, it also was a coincidence that I was a young professor and so I was, you know, buying my first house. So I was carefully watching the real estate market, but I also knew about these collateralized mortgage obligations and debt obligations that, you know, my friends in finance were themselves building and modeling. And so I kind of had this double whammy where I realized like house prices are appreciating way beyond what's rationally supportable. And also these quants are building these crazy instruments that even they think are dangerous. Yeah. And so I did quite a lot of writing about that on my blog in the lead up to 2008. So you and I first met in person at SciFu in 2014, and that's an event that's held in the summers by Google. It's actually held at the Googleplex, so it's quite a fun event. Yeah. And they generally, they try to invite world-class scientists and other leaders. My impression that when you and I actually met up there in person, we spent, I remember we talked one at one point, we talked really late into the night. My impression was that you had not spent a lot of time around world-class scientists before that event. Is that fair? Yeah, that's true. Could you talk a little bit about that? I think you, you were impressed that the way that these world-class scientists talk to each other and often across disciplinary boundaries is very different from the way people in politics or in Westminster talk to each other. Yeah, it was it was a it was a fascinating event for me because, as you say, you know, you had all the people like you and George Church and all of these kind of famous people talking about things, but in an extremely different way to the way in which people in politics talk about the world. And it was fascinating in all sorts of ways. It was interesting just to see how that culture worked. It was also interesting to see some of the things that they talked about. For example. One thing I took away from there was clearly how drones were going to change warfare. And in fact, I blogged about it shortly afterwards and said, clearly in a few years' time, it'll be possible for some teenager to steer their drones over Westminster and blow things up. But people in Westminster thought it was a sign of, you know, yet again, how I lost the plot. But it was obvious talking to people there what was coming. But at the same time, I was, it was also interesting that I thought that the scientists were generally naive about how politics works and it's kind of assumed that politics is far more rational and that the politicians are much more interested in actually trying to solve problems than is actually the case. 
So I also was rather pessimistic about the chances of that culture affecting politics in the way that they wanted to. Yes. One of the aspects of Saifu is that, you know, aside from the scientists describing, you know, the recent developments in their own areas to others, which is great, there's always this kind of utopianism where the scientists, some subset of the scientists decide like, oh, we're going to band together and solve problem X or problem Y, where X and Y could be climate change or, you know, social justice or something like that. And that aspect of it to me is usually pretty cringeworthy. I mean, it's like, it's not like the scientists really understand in practical terms how the world works. So although idealism is great, oftentimes I think they're very misguided in, in what it's actually possible for them to achieve. Yeah, I mean, I'd be interested in your view of this because so one thing I think is that if I think about two kind of overlapping worlds from that period, say 2014, take the world of kind of VC and startup world and then take the world of kind of like basic science research and kind of elite scientists. I would say that the first world has updated and changed a lot in how it sees about politics, it's how it sees politics and government. But I don't think that the second world of elite science has. So when I talk to kind of startup people now, particularly after COVID, I think a lot more of them realize the reality of how politicians work, of how big bureaucracies work, because it was kind of forced you know, everyone's been kind of forced to face this, right? Because of not just the COVID disaster in the kind of spring to 2020, but watching all the political parties and the bureaucracies and the old media kind of very consciously not update and not learn and then just keep repeating the same mistakes. And it seems to me that a lot of the startup VC kind of world has watched that and changed its own, you know, people in that, those worlds have changed their minds. Whereas my impression is that a lot of scientists still don't really want to update and face with the reality of how government works. But I don't know, you're obviously much closer to, to, to both worlds than me. Do you, does that sound right or not? Yeah, what you're saying is completely right. Now, I can discuss two aspects of this. One is that Silicon Valley was very naive initially about how important government was. And they gradually learned that because when their companies got bigger and were actually, you know, directly impacted by government regulation, they realized they had to have lobbyists and all kinds of other things. And so that was a trend, which I think when you were there, it, that a trend had just gotten started. The other thing is that startup people are just more, much more real world in general than scientists. Scientists can always live in ivory tower yeah. and have very abstract notions about what's happening in the world. Whereas startup people have to they have to really gauge what's happening realistically in their, you know, in their narrow market space, but also in society in general. And so they're much more likely to discover that something in the real world is not actually matching their hypotheses than the average academic or scientist. I think you're spot on about that. And even COVID didn't, right, I think didn't fully change the, you know, isolated utopian viewpoints of scientists. Although, although there, you know, plenty of scientists have been radicalized by what happened. Yeah. In COVID, because they watching carefully what epidemiologists were saying and then what actually turned out to be true and, you know, what the government knew or didn't know. And so th there's been something happening, but still there are plenty of naive academics. Yeah. So after we got to know each other in person, that's a couple of years later, that's really when you got involved in Vote Leave. Is that right? Yes, actually, probably about a year later. So I think Saifu was summer 14. And then it was summer 15, just after Cameron won the election, 
that various people came to me and said, then you've got a startup, you've got to create a startup to, to deal with the referendum. So yeah, that was almost exactly a year later. And those are the events that are mainly chronicled in the movie starring Cumberbatch. Is that right? Yes. Yes. So I remember communicating with you a little bit about this. And I always have to admit, I never really understood, you know, you know, why Brexit was or was not a great idea. I mean, certainly at that time, the whole thing to me was, you know, a very abstract and I, I didn't know any of the details. And, uh, but I just thought, well, if Dom's going to do this, it's really awesome. So I'm going to pay attention. And the day of the vote, I happened to be at this crazy meeting on Lake Como, which is in the Italian Alps with a bunch of super rich capital allocators, billionaires and such. And the night before we were talking about the vote and they were pretty certain that Brexit wasn't going to win, that vote was going to win. And then the following morning, people were running around with their hair on fire, trading <laughs> all, you know, making all, I was in the mark. So it's always going to be very memorable in my mind, because what the moment when it actually happened, I was actually in the, you know, the mansion of a billionaire on Lake Como and all of them were just totally in shock, but I knew what was coming because I knew you. Mm. And when they asked me, the markets were way down and they were trying to decide whether they should liquidate their positions. And they, you know, and I'm just some physics guy who happened to be there for their entertainment. Right. So, but they asked me, this billionaire hedge fund guy asked me, he said, well, what'd you do, Steve? And I said, I think this is transitory because we're not really going to know what the full consequences of Brexit are for, you know, years. And so I think the market's oversold right now. I think you're okay. And he actually took my advice and it saved him a lot of money, actually. That's my memory of, of your victory. Yeah, it was crazy. I think a lot of, well, obviously the polls were wrong, right? And that, and that inevitably, that inevitably meant that elites all over the world were, were, were I think, were about to get a bit of a shock. One of the reasons why the polls were wrong, well, there were two interesting things about it. One was our data science team made up of physicists predicted the year before in 2015, they said, after meeting various polling companies, they said, you know what's going to happen next year? All of these polling companies, it's clear that the polling industry are largely a bunch of charlatans in various ways. And then what's going to happen is that they all live in London, which is the epicenter of Remain. And they're all going to make a bunch of methodological changes to the polling over the last few weeks. And all of the changes will move things in a remain direction and they'll fool themselves about what's happening. And therefore, if it's close, like the sweet spot for us is to be like 52, 48 behind because in the polls, because they'll all kid themselves. And that's basically exactly, uh, uh, exactly what happened. It was close enough for, us at, for it actually to be competitive, but they, but people didn't really believe it. And the pulse has all made a bunch of adjustments in the last couple of months. And pretty much every single adjustment the pulse has made pushed the polls in the wrong direction. So yeah, it was, it was an interesting example of how, because London was so out of sync with the rest of the country, it meant that hedge funds, the media, everybody was kind of living in a bubble in London and got fooled. Yeah, this, this has kind of become a theme, you know, Trump's victory in 2016 and things like this. But over the years, I can attest, you and I have had many conversations about the quality of polling, the quality of data science in polling. And you ultimately built your own team that, you know, I think many of them were former physics guys or math guys 
they actually, in some of the meetings I had with them, they told me they had literally gone through the entire literature on polling theory and voting theory and all this stuff and classified all the papers in the academic literature as wrong or probably right. And the ones they had high confidence in were the things that they incorporated into their own methodology. Yeah. So maybe, maybe you can talk a little bit about that because you have, I know you have your own secret polling data science team. Well, they, I mean, essentially, they, as you say, they were a bunch of physicists and math guys, and they, they looked at a bunch of the polling, the public polling in 2015. And we also met various companies and talked to them about how they did things. And the data science guys said, basically, most of these companies, I just don't really know what they're doing. It's all operating on these thousand person polls and simple maths. But the way that they correct for these things is not done in any kind of properly scientific way. So then they went off and, as you say, they basically like, you know, scanned around a whole bunch of literature. And but they also found some fascinating things, particularly by a guy, professor of applied maths in the States called Gelman, who'd done these experiments on, he'd done, he, there's one paper where he did polling via Xbox of like 300,000 people or something for the US presidential 2012 campaign. And of course, in any normal sense, you'd say, well, how can you poll via Xbox? Because the demographic's incredibly skewed to young, to, to young men. But essentially what this thing showed was that very large sampling plus some fancy Bayesian statistics actually is a just theoretically better way of doing polling than thousand person polls and simple maths. And so we built the data, the voting data science team built some models using these papers, which they found on the internet. Um, it's kind of remarkable in lots of ways, right? Because it turned out that quite a lot of these ideas actually, I think, go back to the seventies even, but basically nobody in politics really had applied them and figured out some, so one of the most interesting things that we figured out straight away in 2015 was that education was crucial. And if you wait, start waiting polls by education then you got very different results than what a lot of the public polls were showing. And of course, this turned out to be very relevant, not just to the Brexit results and why the polls were wrong, but also to what happened in some of the crucial states in 2016 in America with Trump, where similarly, a lot of the polling companies then were not waiting by education and therefore didn't pick up what was happening with, with non-college whites. And hence why, you know, why almost all the models were wrong in the States in 2016 for similar reasons to what happened on Brexit. The guy you're referring to is Andrew Gelman, who also yeah. writes a blog and is a professor at Columbia in statistics and political science. Also, I think trained as he was an undergrad physics major at MIT. Yeah, he, he definitely is very insightful. And these large scale polling efforts with Bayesian corrections, you know, might be the way to go in the future. And it's astonishing there isn't more investment in trying to actually do polling in a more scientific way. Yeah, it also says something, I think, very interesting about politics. You know, one thing, so the naivety of politics is that the people in charge are actually interested in government. Then when you actually meet them and you realize that's obviously not the case, that almost all of them have no real interest in government at all. But then the kind of slightly updated version of that is, okay, well, they're not interested in government, but they are at least interested in winning elections. But that also is not correct. One of the most interesting things about politics, I think, is that, that they're not actually even serious about winning elections. And one of the ways you know that is because if you're serious about winning elections, then you would take polling seriously. And you can just see as a matter of unarguable fact that 
almost all politicians just don't even take polling seriously. And what they're actually optimizing for almost always is very short-term horizons in terms of how the media operate and in-group signaling that affects their careers. You know, so what the internal shift, what the internal shifting coalition on their own side, what they're thinking and very short-term calculations about how you send signals to this coalition and therefore do or do not get opportunities to ascend these hierarchies. And the feedback on these things is very short term, and it pretty much swamps actually calculating rationally how you would win an election. If you're actually trying to win an election, then a huge amount of behavior will be radically different than what you actually see. Is this situation somewhat different in the UK because you have a parliamentary system? Because having the support of the other Tories in the long run might be more important than a particular election. Whereas in the U.S., like the guys who want to become president, they do really care. Now, they may not really understand polling either, but they do really want to win that election. I actually, so I know, I don't think, I don't think it is different. I'll give you, I'll give you a classic example. Look at the Hillary campaign. If you look at the Hillary campaign, something like a third of the adverts that Hillary's campaign ran, not only, were not even just a waste of time, they actively helped Trump. And the adverts which got, which had most money behind them and got most attention and retweeting and kind of signal boosting from inside the Democratic coalition were precisely the adverts which most helped Trump and most harmed Hillary. So if you look at, if you look at the Hillary campaign, they, they were absolute. I mean, it was a classic example of what I'm talking about that they were Effectively, the internal culture of the campaign was pulled far more towards what's Washington thinking, what's the New York Times thinking, what are insiders thinking, what are our activists and our donors thinking, not what are non-college whites in Wisconsin thinking. And that's why they lost, which an election which, like Remain, they should, they should never have lost. But is it possible that they actually have the right motivations and incentives. It's just that they're just overwhelmed by the bubble thinking, you know, the self-reinforcement within their own group think. And they just don't realize these ads are really going to, you know, they just can't even imagine the person that wouldn't agree with the ad. <laughs> so could it be a cognitive limitation as opposed to the wrong motivations and incentives? I don't know, because it's, I mean, it shouldn't be, I mean, conceptually, this is not very complicated, right? The there's a pretty simple way of approaching things. You figure out what, like, who are the actual critical voters that they're going to affect whether you win or lose? What do they actually, what do they fear? What do they want? What kind of creative communications objectively work with them? Now, of course, this is not perfect, but it doesn't take huge sophistication to go and run a bunch of focus groups and show ads to critical voters in the right states and determine okay, this actually works or this actually doesn't work. They hate it. But when you actually deal with politicians, you realize that's just that, that, that the psychological pressures in elite politics are very strongly about, about what you say to each other, not trying to figure out these problems. And actually, this was actually literally the very, very first lesson I ever got in politics. So when I first started the, on the Euro campaign at the end of 98, in quarter one, 1999, I went out and I did a big market research program about what people actually thought about the euro and various arguments about it. And of course, unsurprisingly, it turned out that 
um, what the public actually thought was very surprising in all sorts of ways. And a huge amount of things that the keep the pound people believed were true about public opinion were false. And a huge number of arguments they were making didn't either didn't work or were actively counterproductive. And the arguments that did work were a no. So I realized this and I was really shocked. And I took all the results to these conservative politicians thinking in my extreme naivety, they'll be very pleased that we've done this work and they'll realize that you know, we all, everyone on our side will realize that actually people think completely differently than what we thought and what we thought works doesn't work and what does work is completely weird and unexpected. But in fact, it, the exact opposite happened. Everyone was incredibly cross with me and like actively angry that I'd done this and basically just dismissed it all. And this was a huge surprise to me in 1999. And to begin with, I thought, well, maybe this is just like a weird aberration. Maybe this is not a kind of you know, standard feature of how this world works because it's so shocking. But over the years, it's turned out to be completely unchangeable. And exactly the same thing happened on Brexit. Almost all the Tory MPs wanted to use arguments on Brexit that objectively did not work, either were pointless or the public actively disagreed with. And the things that actually worked best, the pro-Brexit MPs largely completely hated and didn't want to say. And I think it's very similar to the Hillary situation. They live in a world, they talk to people every day, to each other every day, and that world just ends up dominating the objective world of how regular people outside politics think and feel and talk, which is terrible in lots of ways and depressing. But on the other hand, it means a huge low-hanging fruit in various ways as well. Yeah, you know, I think your superpower, Dom, is that you are able to actually accept and perceive base reality and react rationally, you know, you know, in, in running the campaign. Whereas I think what you're pointing out is most of the political leaders just can't do that. I also want to say that, you know, your detractors, they have this caricature of you as thinking of yourself as an evil genius or having a huge ego, but it's actually quite the opposite. I mean, in, in what you've been telling me, you're, you're always self-deprecating saying, well, I can't believe these people don't understand this. It's so simple. It didn't take much to figure this out. And when I told them, they just got mad. But you know, you're not saying you're the only one in the world who can do this because you're a super genius. You're actually kind of shocked that the politicians can't understand these basic points that you're making to them. Yeah, I don't think there's, I mean, I don't think there's anything which I've done in politics, which took really any kind of, certainly didn't take any great brains. I think, I I think the thing which I increasingly think though is that I think essentially core issue is that politics is such a kind of gang activity and that in almost all normal ways to get, kind of get ahead in it, you have to kind of be part of the gang. I want to adv- advance in that gang. And that's basically how these party systems work in Western countries. But once you go along with that, then it makes it just extremely hard to face realistically a whole set of questions. But if you face realistically a whole set of questions, then it similarly makes it extremely hard for you to get along with any kind of gang. And I think probably the main difference between me and a lot of the people that I've ended up you know, politically fighting against in Remain or the election or whatever is that for me, for me, it's more important to win and to figure out, and therefore to figure out what's actually going on than it is to be friends with people. And I think that's probably, I think that's probably a crucial thing. 
Before we leave the data science polling sort of thing, campaigning sort of thing, I wanted to get one thing on the record. So during vote leave or, or after vote leave one, there are all these charges by your detractors that you had worked with Cambridge Analytica and that you had actually used Facebook to manipulate the electorate in evil ways. Mm. And my understanding talking to your team is that you guys didn't work with Cambridge Analytica at all. And that, you know, that's become like established wisdom amongst the left, I think in the UK, but it's just totally wrong. Could you just comment on that? Yeah, I think, so to some extent, this was also, I think, a, a product of, of Trump winning in that the combination of Brexit then Trump was so was such a shock that a lot of the establishment were looking for some kind of explanation, right? So you had a weird kind of combination of things. The New York Times had done all these stories on Hillary's emails, which objectively was actually quite an important factor in what happened at the end of that campaign. They were looking for someone else to blame. And then suddenly you had this Carol Cadwallader at The Observer comes along and creates this whole conspiracy theory based on the idea that me, Bannon, Trump's guy, a guy called Robert Mercer, former machine learning expert, I think, who then went to Renaissance Technologies, the famous hedge fund, and Putin and the KGB, that we were actually all essentially working together. And that the huge arguments supposedly between me and Farage and the huge fallouts between me and Farage and the fact that Farage tried to get me fired from vote leave and all this, she portrayed as all essentially a kind of information operation scam, KGB style, whilst actually we were all secretly coordinating behind the scenes via Cambridge Analytica and this other company called AIQ. And I remember going to book in 2017, I think it was, for this conference. I almost all the people there knew who I was. And I remember sitting in these rooms listening to all of these academics talk, and they all were talking about this thing, and they all believed it. And they all thought that Trump had won because of Cambridge Analytica and Facebook and psychometric, psychometric Facebook targeting and all of this. And of course, it's all just complete. I mean, the conspiracy theory obviously is bullshit, but also the kind of the kind of world which they imagine of how Facebook advertising actually worked was also just complete nonsense. But uh, the story fit because people wanted to believe that Brexit happened and Trump happened because of a kind of evil conspiracy between capitalist hedge fund people, racists. And Putin and the KGB, right? That story just fits psychologically. So you have this incredible irony of the left saying that the kind of uneducated masses were fooled by this conspiracy, whereas they were the ones actually believing this ludicrous, this ludicrous misinformation from the Guardian and the New York Times. Yeah, I mean that to me was a mass delusion that affected you know millions of people on the left. Plenty of thought leaders who are sort of left-leaning, lots of academics. Yeah. And now it's just kind of, it's faded just because of time, because time has passed. But it's not because people actually figured out what really happened and then updated properly. They're, I think they're still confused. Do you think, though, it's a, in, a way, in a weird way, it's kind of lived on, I think, in that if you look at the whole thing now with Putin, it seems to me, well, I think one of the things that people in Europe don't understand about America, which I didn't really grasp until I went over to the States in September, was that for a lot of American elites, 
what's happening with in, in the war now, they see it as, yeah, this is a war against Putin, but it's also a war against Trump. And like, why is it that the Bernie Sanders, AOC, etc., left, who you know protested against every war, argued against Iraq, blah blah, but they're just completely gung ho for this? And I think one of the things that people don't understand in Europe is that the part of the reason for this is that they see the war against Putin as part of the war against Trump. And part of the reason why that's the case is these people all still basically believe a large part of the Cadwallader, Guardian, New York Times conspiracy that you know, Trump was put there by Putin. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Maybe a non, someone who's not an American would not be familiar with this, but I think your take on it is absolutely correct. There's still a remnant of that kind of thinking of associating Putin with Trump and therefore, you know, wanting to really smite them in Ukraine. Yeah. Let me turn to just a lighter topic just for a moment. Benedict Cumberbatch played you in a major motion picture. And the last time I discussed this with you, you had not watched it. Have you still not watched it? I did sort of watch it actually in 2021 after I'd left. I said at the time that I wouldn't watch it until and unless Brexit actually happened. And after I left government in November 2020, and I watched it in sometime in 2021. I want to say to the listeners that, you know, it's not, it's not completely factual, it's entertainment, but I did find it incredibly entertaining. Well, it's a sort of weird thing because it's sort of, so it's all actually, it connects to a previous question because one of the oddities of it is that the guy who originally wrote it, the guy called James Graham, wrote it having read all of the Cadwallader stuff and the Observer and the Guardian stuff and thought that this was basically correct. So he wrote the original script of this and it was commissioned by Channel 4 essentially to be kind of dramatized version of the Cadwallader conspiracy theory. However, the guy was honest and he came to us to talk about it and we explained, and I actually sat him down with some of the data science people who explained to him how Facebook advertising actually works. And he realized, holy shit, actually, this whole thing, the Cadwallader conspiracy is wrong, but I've sold this story to Channel 4. So the story ends up getting rewritten in all sorts of ways. So it ends up, it's, it's ended up as a slightly odd thing where the kind of original kind of foundations of it were that this conspiracy theory is true. And there are kind of odd traces of it with a weird appearance by Robert Mercer. But the guy writing it basically realized that the story wasn't true and then rewrote it. So it's a slight, it's an odd thing in the end. Yeah. There's still a hacker character, right? That you meet with. And that's kind of a composite of, I think maybe a physicist that we, a physicist or two that we know, but uh, yeah, I think they removed most of the Cadwallader conspiracy stuff from the movie, if I recall. Yeah. And of course, you know, as you and I have talked about before, in the conspiracy theory version of the story, the interesting technological thing that we did was digital marketing. Whereas in the reality, the digital marketing that we did was very bog standard. It wasn't very technologically new at all. The interesting technological thing we did was the polling to try and figure out what people thought and what the real groups were, what the real demographics were. That was actually the interesting thing, but of course that's not at all in the story, which actually ended up being really useful, I think, in, in other ways, in that in 2019, we again had just far better polling than everybody else in the 2019 election and understood what the true marginal seats were and who the real swing voters were. But no one had really paid any attention to polling since the referendum because the Guardian had fooled everyone into thinking that the interesting thing we did was digital marketing, which wasn't true. 
you know, we've talked about this a little bit in the past, you know, your degrees in ancient history. This specific incident that we're talking about right now, the Vote Leave campaign, which is a historical event and heavily documented. I think there have been multiple books written about it, et cetera. It's a historical event. Given how distorted the information that a, an average person can get about the things you just described, I just can't believe historians can possibly get lots of details right. I mean, we, you know, I can look at what supposedly informed journalists and academics are writing about the events of the Vote Leave campaign, and it's just totally wrong. And I don't see how history is going to really fully correct right? so that people 20 years from now, looking back on it, will have a realistic picture of what actually happened. Yeah, it's definitely affected my, you know, I read ancient monastery university, as you say, and having been part of various things, which now people write history books about, it definitely makes me far more skeptical about everything I read historically, for sure. And far less trusting. You just realize that there are just, that a hell of a lot of what you read must just be completely wrong. But also there's just vast amounts of things that actually happened, which are just not recorded anywhere and are completely lost. Also, one of the interesting things that I've found is, so I got very, very heavily into studying Bismarck to, a, to an unhealthily focused extent in that I've been for years writing this chronology where possible, like hour by hour of what actually happened. And one of the things that you realize when you do this is that all the main books just have many key dates wrong and they all kind of contradict each other. It's the same as, you know, if, say, if you sit down and read the top 10 books on World War One, you'll quickly see that like, a huge number of key dates and timings are wrong, which therefore means that a lot of assumptions about causality are wrong because things actually happened after the thing which they're talking about. So yeah. It's, it's Tyler Cohen, I think, says all the time that actually you'll learn far more from travel than you will from history. I think that's, I think with a, the exception of a few books, I think that's probably correct. I still think you should read things like Thucydides, but I think a huge amount of what you read in history is just not correct. I think Napoleon referred to history as a fable agreed upon. Something like that. Mm. So let's, let's jump ahead. I, I'm going to give you a very strong recollection that I have. A summer day in 2019, I'm visiting London for some meetings and I'm in an Airbnb in Camden overlooking the canal. And you come by my Airbnb for beer and we sit overlooking the canal and you have a sheet of paper with you, which is a list of demands that you are going to present to Boris Johnson later that evening, which were the conditions for you to join his team, mm. his chief advisor. Yeah. Do you remember that? I do. So tell us, just tell us what happened that day or in that meeting with Boris. It's a slightly complicated affair, but simplifying it a bit, essentially I'd been abroad. He was about to win the, the Tory leadership. It was clear from the polls that he was like overwhelmingly ahead and would therefore be announced as being prime minister on the Wednesday. And he essentially texted me and said, can I come around to your house? And I said, sure. And he came around and we sat down in my living room and he essentially said, I'm going to be prime minister shortly. Everyone thinks that we're snookers. We're in a kind of Zugs fan where there's no escape. There's no way through to get Brexit with our, and the government somehow is going to collapse into an election. You guys somehow found a way to win the referendum when everyone thought it was impossible. You should 
basically we assemble your old team, come into number 10, and somehow let's find a way through this nightmare and get Brexit done and move the country on. And essentially, I wrote down some key demands and said, well, if you sign up to these in writing, then then okay, I'll do it. And they were a mix of how number 10 had to work and my role in it, and also things like you've got to approve a doubling of science research, you've got to agree to create a kind of British version of the old ARPA, you've got to let me get to grips with procurement and some of the deep state questions and civil service reform and things like that. And he essentially just said, yeah, fine, whatever. I mean, he's just, he was, he really didn't want to be, you know, only prime minister for 50 or a hundred days and then get spat out. He wanted somehow to win and he was prepared to sign up to almost anything to try and get us in there to make it happen. And is this what you might later refer to as Boris in self-aware mode? Yes, he was. Then he said, you know, even he said, you worked in government before, you understand how Whitehall operates, you got all of these reforms done in the Department of Education. I don't understand Whitehall. I'm not a details person. I don't understand management. I don't even know what the hell the cabinet office is, never mind what it does and how to maneuver it to get what I want. There's all these technicalities of Brexit that I don't understand. Even the people who've been working on this for 30 years don't understand it. So so bloody complicated. And a lot of people in Whitehall don't want us to solve this problem. They actually, you know, they want the thing to collapse. They want a second referendum. And how the hell we, how the hell we, we fit. We have a combination of the political problems we've got, the Brexit negotiations that we've got where we've got no parliamentary majority. The whole of Westminster's gone crazy. I don't understand how the actual government and the government office work. No, this is a big, complicated set of problems all to deal with at the same time. But also, uh, another important thing was that his girlfriend wanted us in there at the time. So Boris was in self-aware mode, but his girlfriend was also in self-aware mode. And she called me up and said, no, Boris hasn't got a Scooby-Doo how government actually works. You've got to go in there. So she was, at that time, very supportive of the old Vote Leave team going into number 10. Incredible. Is there anything you would do differently? Now, looking back, like different ways to modify the conditions or was all that more or less irrelevant just because the feelings of Boris and his girlfriend turned against you later? I mean, there's all sorts of kind of tactical things that, you, that one could say, you know, could have been done differently and the you know, the world's so complicated. Inevitably, when you're in those jobs, you know, people make mistakes every day in various ways. But I think the fundamental big picture on the whole thing was that the relations changed literally from 10 o'clock on the night of the election. Once the result came in, well, not even the result, once the exit poll dropped showing that, showing ADC majority, relations changed literally immediately within seconds. You could feel the room change. And essentially, she, the girlfriend wanted, wanted us there to win and solve the problem and make sure that they weren't kicked out. But once the majority was won, she thought, I want to control what actually happens downstairs with my friends in key jobs. That's never going to happen when the Vote Leave team are there. The Vote Leave team should be got rid of. And me and Boris can do things our way for the next four years. And he essentially was more frightened of her than he was of us. And so... As relations got trickier and trickier during the course of 2020, I mean, it was already very difficult within two weeks of the election. Uh, within two weeks of the election, there were already discussions 
about how she was trying to force people out of the building. It wasn't reported in the media then, and people didn't realize there were problems really until the summer. But in fact, there were problems within days. Now, I remember having some communication with you in the lead up to the general election. And I would always compare what you told me to what the press was reporting in the UK. And the listeners to this podcast who are in the UK will have all kinds of questions about detailed things like prorogation of parliament and various tactics. And my recollection is that, you know, you were setting up the other side for this general election and you were going to crush them. And the media just did not get it. They thought you guys were just toast. Am I remembering that right? Maybe you can just embellish a little bit on what I just said. Well, I think the, yeah, by the time I arrived in, you know, when we walked in July, late July, 2019, it was at the end of three years of, you know, the whole of Westminster kind of driving itself into a sort of nervous breakdown. When I first went into, which I didn't really quite, you know, you can, obviously I had some sense of this just from watching the news. I didn't really appreciate it until I actually physically walked in. The first time I walked into Parliament, I saw people just kind of like weeping and shouting hysterically at each other in corridors. I had streams of MPs following along behind me, dance, literally dancing with rage just at my physical presence. And so I realized that, I realized that, you know, that a very large faction of Westminster just basically completely lost their minds in this constitution, this kind of slowly developing constitutional crisis. And we didn't know exactly how we were going to, how we were going to get through, but in lots of ways, the fact that they'd driven themselves so mad was actually helped, turned out to be helpful for us because they just believed a lot of things that didn't, essentially the remain, the remain side and labor very similarly to what happened with remain in 2016, by being in London and by being surrounded by just themselves and talking to each other. They ended up just really losing connection with what the country thought. And therefore, we were able just to tell a simple story that this problem's got to be resolved. There's only one way of doing it. And it's the only way that, that the country can move on. And one of the reasons why you know, our slogan wasn't Brexit is brilliant. Our slogan was get Brexit done. And one of the reasons for that was that a lot of Remain, people who voted Remain, agreed with it. Get Brexit done meant let's put this behind us. Right, so Brexit people could support it because they supported Brexit and they wanted it to happen. But also, a lot of other people could support it because they realised we can't have a second referendum. That's that way lies disaster. I voted Remain, but yes, I agree with Boris. We have got to get Brexit done so the country can move on. And I think a lot of people in Westminster just didn't understand that feeling, just like they didn't understand things in the summer '16. You know, one of the things I love about the British people is this, yeah, fair play attitude, which is that even if you were on the other side, you were a remainer, you, a lot of people were just fair-minded. They said, we lost and we should just carry through because that's how government works in this country. And so you were roping those guys in as well by saying, get Brexit, Brexit done. Yeah. I think that that's, I mean, uh, ironically, I'd actually suggested in 2015, you know, maybe there's an argument for having two referendums, one referendum on the principle of leaving and then another referendum on the actual deal. And ironically, the entire establishment went crazy with this idea because they thought it was a trick and they were, and therefore they all came out incredibly strongly and completely categorically, the prime minister, the chancellor, the whole, you know, the cabinet, the labor people, the official remain campaign, everybody said, absolutely not, no tricks from Cummings, 
one referendum, the result must stand, it'll stand for a generation. So they were all kind of on record saying this in summer 16, because of course they thought there was no way they could lose. And therefore this was the opportunity to crush the levers for 20, 30, 40 years. But the fact that they did, that they'd been so incredibly explicit about it, of course, then boomeranged when they then tried to say afterwards, oh, well, actually we didn't mean that. Actually, there should be a second referendum. And that became a big problem for them. And a lot of people took the view, I didn't agree with Brexit, but you can't have a referendum where the entire political class and parliament votes explicitly saying, we will respect the result. And then because the result is not what they want, they just change their mind and say, oh, actually, you know, we're going to spend three years dicking around and then force you all to vote again. A lot, a lot of the country just regarded that as fundamentally unfair and also dangerous because you're really undermining the, I mean, a great irony, the people who were pushing hardest for the second referendum were the people who babble on most about Trump and Trump's coup in inverted commas and anti-democ- the anti-democratic nature of Trump. And of course, they're literally exactly the same people who pushed hardest to say, yeah, we don't like the referendum. So the, pub- the, the public were should have to vote again. Yeah, you can't demand logical consistency from these people. It's way too much. For the record, I recall your data science team made some predictions about how that final, that general election would turn out. And maybe you could just remind us how accurate, maybe more accurate than than they had any right to be, but definitely much more accurate than, you know, the public polls. Yeah, uh, they probably got, they probably got a bit lucky, but they ended up then the model ended up being accurate to like to a majority of to to within one in terms of the total number of seats for the conservatives. And so what happened was that we in 2018 we thought, look, there's a reasonable chance that this whole thing is going to collapse in 2019, and maybe there'll be a chance for us to seize control of Downing Street in the chaos. So what we should do is we should ramp up the election models that we started to build in the referendum. We should ramp these up secretly so that if we do manage to grab control of number 10, then we've got a key bit of technology that will be crucial for an election because you, know, you can't build this stuff in a few weeks. So I went off to, some, to a few hedge funds and billionaires and said, give me half a million quid and I'll build this secretly and then we'll have a substantial advantage if things work out a certain way. And then in 2019... Oddly, that's what ended up happening. So where we did grab control of number 10, we also had these models built secretly in the kind of nine months previous to that, which we then, which then gave us confidence when the election came. So let's jump ahead a little bit and maybe you can tell us the story of the pandemic as viewed from number 10. My goodness. I mean, where to start with that? I mean, obviously in, so in the first place, it became clear that the planning that the system thought that Britain was pretty much the best prepared country in the world for a pandemic and told itself that. That obviously turned out to be wrong in almost all important ways. The plan was for a flu virus, not for what actually hit. A lot of the preparations that need to have been done hadn't been made. At the heart of it was a kind of groupthink that there is effectively no alternative to a single wave herd immunity by September approach that what you, what China was doing in terms of lockdowns and what we could see in East Asia 
with aggressive action plus mass te- plus testing and whatnot. That was essentially thought of not just in Britain, but also I think elsewhere in the West as just not as not practical in various ways. Partly because of completely wrong. So I think one of the interesting lessons is that governments took quote behavioral science unquote far more seriously than it should have done. A lot of behavioral science turned out to be complete charlatanry and bullshit. For example, one of the things that governments were told, not just in Britain, but elsewhere was, well, the public won't tolerate various measures being in place for more than a few days. Therefore, everything has to be timed perfectly. This turned out to be complete nonsense. So there are all kinds of just completely wrong ideas buzzing around. But that was quite common, I think, you know, across the Western world, similar mistakes were made. You know, in the States, you had People like Trump and Caprice saying, close the borders, you know, Caprice the model, ex-supermodel. And of course, a lot of the public health people then said, this is completely racist. And then people said, well, look at East Asia, they're wearing masks and no, masks don't work. And then suddenly the whole kind of official truth completely flipped. And instead of closing borders being racist, public health world and a lot of the left shifted to, well, we should close borders. So so there's kind of... Well, what were all the mistakes that happened in the kind of January to spring is one set of questions. But in a way, I think the more interesting thing is, why were so many of those mistakes repeated? Why was it so hard for the for Western governments, for the political parties, for the media, for the bureaucracies to update? Why did things like Fauci and the uh, CDC and everything, like, why did they just keep being such monumental shit shows over and over again? Why couldn't they improve? You know... I have a very specific recollection. Maybe you can tell me if I have it right. So when you came into office, there was already a plan for the UK to deal with a kind of pandemic. Maybe it was more of a flu-like pandemic than what actually we had. Yeah. But the goal would have was to go for herd immunity. Yeah. And that view held the day within SAGE until you and your team came in and pointed out this is going to kill an unacceptably large number of people and we need to shift strategy. It, is, is that a fair recounting of events? I say it's not, well, not exactly. I'd say, so there was an official plan, which was herd immunity. I, the plan though didn't come from SAGE, which is this for your readers is the scientific kind of advisory group to the government. The plan came from a combination of the Department of Health and the Cabinet Office. Well, those two entities kept thinking that there was no, that this was the only way of handling it. But the scale of deaths that this, this involves was vast. And it soon became clear that people just hadn't thought through the con- hadn't thought through the consequences of it because it effectively meant the official plan and the official charts they presented to the prime minister in February and early March, effectively meant that the NHS would just be completely overwhelmed by, you know, multiple, multiple factors. When we looked at it, there was a day when they presented these graphs of, you know, these waves in various peaks and said, here you are, Prime Minister, look at this. You can see here's NHS capacity and here's the, you know, projected wave. And Boris said, this graph doesn't have the NHS capacity on it. To which the answer was, it does, Prime Minister, but you have to look very carefully at the x-axis because if you see, it's actually the line of NHS capacity is almost on the x-axis because of the scale, right? 
because the peak of the graph was, I can't remember now, but like somewhere between 500,000 and 800,000 or something. NHS capacity was in the thousands. So the line denoting the NHS capacity was almost indistinguishable from the x-axis line. That's how just completely blown out of the water the the, the NHS was going to be. And then we started hearing phone calls and officials coming to tell us things like, yeah, obviously there's no storage capacity for all the bodies and people are starting to call around and ask, can the ice rinks all be turned into temporary storage facilities for the bodies because we haven't got the body bags to bury all of these people. And we suddenly you know, realized that the whole system was kind of in this group thing that we've just got to accept that there's going to be half a million people killed. Actually, more than half a million, right? Because the official estimates were around about half a million. But then when you actually factored in, when we said to them, yeah, but this also means no health service for, what, three months or something for anything else. So every child that has a serious accident there's no health service for them either. How many more casualties on top of just the COVID death toll are going to be? No one even counted that, that or modeled it. And we realized that essentially the system had kind of locked itself into this group thing. But there were other parts of the system also, including in SAGE, where people realized that this was not sustainable and we couldn't actually do it. And... So over a period in the kind of first half of March, essentially me and some others tried to, essentially what we tried to do was accelerate everything as fast as we could to buy us time. And instead of thinking the only possible plan is a single wave herd immunity by September, suppress it for the moment, buy ourselves time, and then start kind of Manhattan Project style enterprises on vaccines, on treatments, and perhaps we'll end up trying to navigate multiple waves over a, a year or two. And that, and that second strategy is where we kind of push things to round about the Wednesday, the 18th of March. Right. So thank, thanks for going through that. I think I, I had it slightly wrong what I said to you, but the really key meeting, the dramatic meeting I recall was you and your team whiteboarding for Boris, these potential casualties and, and a, against NHS capacity. And that, is that what carried the day? Yeah. So we, by roundabout the kind of Thursday, the 12th, Friday, the 13th, we were the data science team at number 10 that we built plus various outsiders were starting to shout and say, hang on a second, this is a disaster. People haven't thought through what the consequences of these things are. This is not a sustainable, this is not a sustainable plan. We've got to change course. And so on the night of Friday the 13th, we wrote out various whiteboards. And then on Saturday the 14th, we basically got Boris in a room with this very small number of people and talked him through the reality, but also explained to him things like the Secretary of State for Health, Matt Hancock, does not understand this. And he thinks, and he is pushing the idea that there is only this one way, this single way for herd immunity plan. No, it's not all his fault. He's being told that by various officials, but he is the kind of minister responsible. And we think that if we go down this path, it's just going to be completely catastrophic. And actually, it's not going to be sustainable. And in a few weeks, everyone, the country is going to demand that you change anyway. So given that it's not going to be politically sustainable and it's the wrong plan, we should basically get ahead of it, ditch the official plan, move to plan B, 
as soon as we possibly can. And we kind of pushed for us quite a long way on the on the Saturday the 14th towards that. But he was constantly trolleying backwards and forwards, so you never knew if you'd actually convinced him of anything. And it wasn't really until about five days later that, that we really succeeded. What was, I mean, over that next five days, was it that he was getting other input that supported your view, or how did he finally come to a conclusion? I think, sorry, I think a very important thing was that, that Patrick Vance, the chief scientific advisor, he basically agreed with us and said the Department of Health official plan, the, the Department of Health slash Cabinet Office official plan, is, I agree, is wrong, and we should change the plan B. And that happened over the weekend of the kind of 12th, 13th, 14th of March. And Pat, once Patrick came on board with a change, then Chris Whitty started to support it as well. And it just became, and also people in SAGE on the 18th, there was a meeting of SAGE on the 18th, which also moved significantly in, in, in that direction. Plus, of course, we could see what was happening in Europe, where similar kind of arguments had been playing out and things were also moving in a certain direction. But so like, fundamentally, Boris shifted because he took the judgment that it was not going to be politically sustainable for him to play the mayor of Jaws, which in various ways he liked the idea of doing. He realized that if he tried to do that, he, as I put it to him at the time, people will march up Downing Street and hang you from a lamppost if you try and be the mayor of Jaws. And he realized it was true. Wow. It's an amazing story. I don't know if this has ever been fully fleshed out. I think I, I followed the media coverage of this, but it's great to hear this from you. When you look back at your time in number 10, which I guess in, in retrospect was really quite brief in some sense, what are your greatest regrets and what are the accomplishments that you're most proud of? Well, we did, you know, so we, we solved the constitutional crisis with Brexit and got that out of the way. I think if we hadn't done that, then that completely broken parliament would have staggered into COVID a few months later and God only knows what would have happened then. Um, it would have been a terrible situation from which we would still not have nearly recovered. So I think, unsurprisingly, I think it's good that we managed to solve that problem. I think you know, essentially there were a, there's a bunch of things that get me and my team wanted to do. There was a set of issues around science and technology. There's a set of issues around productivity of the economy, things like zoning, planning reform, skills, training, the whole kind of ecosystem of venture capital, startups, things like that. There was civil service reform. And within the civil service reform, there was the kind of elements of the deep state, how that works, intelligence services, the Ministry of Defense, things like that. Those are kind of four big areas. And we started a lot of things happening there. We created ARPA, we doubled the science budget. But also lots of the things we started have essentially got closed down almost straight away after we left, including, for example, reform of defense procurement, which is still just completely catastrophic, notwithstanding the fact we've had a year of a year of the war in Ukraine. Most things in that area have gone backwards, not forwards. But it's it, you know, as I said before, it's very tricky to model, to see how things could have worked out differently, given that they almost immediately went sour after the election. I think that in a situation where the Prime Minister's girlfriend wants rid of you, and she's absolutely determined to do that, and he essentially doesn't want to fight with her, and also thinks, on the one hand, I can live being told every day by Dominic and his team that I'm making mistakes and I can't do what I want and that I've actually got to make hard decisions and annoy people, and that's the only way to make progress. Or I can get rid of them, 
and enjoy myself and Keir Starmer, my political opponent's useless and I can basically just enjoy myself and not have to worry. I don't I don't think any kind of argument that we've made or would have made would have made things differently. I mean essentially we were relying on the fact that he would be too frightened to push us out. But he turned out to be more frightened as I said before. He turned out to be more frightened of his girlfriend than he was of us. Though of course we then did push him out afterwards. So he got kind of the worst of all worlds. Would you be interested in having a conversation with Boris now? No, not really. I don't think it would be. Yeah, I don't I, think it would be. From all I've heard of him, he's in such a kind of parallel reality. I don't think. I don't think it would be. I don't think it would be interesting. Well, let me give you an update on one of the things that you pushed for, and I did a little bit of work with you on this. It was to improve the high skill immigration to the UK to make it easier for highly skilled people yeah. to immigrate. Yeah. And uh, I had occasionally, I, you know, it's been years now, but I had occasion to look at this because there was a physicist in Russia who had fled the country because of the Ukraine war and, you know, wanted to perhaps uh, immigrate to the UK. So I went online to look at of the things that you and I had worked on, what had actually been implemented by the, I guess it would be the home office. And it, they have actually quite a positive, very welcoming well-defined set of criteria now by which, for example, this Russian that I was talking to could actually move to the UK and work. So that was also a positive thing that you guys accomplished. Yeah, I think we did make progress there. I think it's still too bureaucratic, as you would expect. And I think if, you know, if we'd been there, we could have improved it more. But yes, we definitely made progress there. And that's definitely been, that's definitely been, it's definitely been progress. I think even some of the biggest enemies of vote leave and Brexit now accept that some of the things we did in that area have been positive. Yep. So let me ask you some general questions, which I think, you know, you're especially well-placed to answer. So one thing that's always, I've always been curious about is who really runs the UK? <laughs> is it big, is it the deep state? Is it the political parties? It's not money. So I think the media presents so I'm talking very much about Britain now. I'm not talking about America, where I think it's it's different. In Britain, donors really have remarkably little, remarkably little influence. I would say, and I was actually very surprised at how little lobbying came my way from donors. I expected it to be more of a problem than than, than it actually was. I think a great kind of so media and MPs collude in telling a story about how the system works, which is almost completely false. So the official story, the way the media present everything is that serious arguments happen between ministers and that the cabinet is a very important institution and that ministers really are in charge of departments. And big things are always presented as big. And, and COVID was a classic example of this, right? It almost all big things over COVID. The media presented... What was the, what was happening as Minister A thinks this and Minister B says that, Minister C thinks that, and there's a great argument between the three of them. In fact, almost always, 99% of the time, these ministers had absolutely nothing to do with anything important. And the decisions were taken almost entirely by officials with almost no ministerial input at all. So overall, the, you know, there's a famous British TV show, which you've probably seen at least one or two episodes of called Yes Minister, yeah. and then Yes Prime Minister. And to a remarkable extent, that's 
actually a, a, a very realistic portrayal of how the British system works. Now, so even to the extent of you know, so the people who you see in the media all the time as supposedly in charge of things are, you know, Secretary of State X and MP. But in fact, if you go into the Prime Minister's private office in number 10, there's a bunch of what are called private secretaries who are recruited from the, you know, the smartest, best job officials. And these private secretaries' names are never ever in the media and they are far more influential on how the government actually works than really any minister apart from the prime minister and in some ways the chancellor. So a bunch of 30-year-olds who no one's ever heard of actually in all sorts of crucial ways on a day-to-day basis are much more important than the people who the media presents as actually being important. And I think that's one of the most misunderstood things. Now, of course, no. so if you, if you turn up all decisions of the 100%, Probably more than 99% of things are decided by officials and less than 1% by politicians. But of course, in that fraction of 1%, there's also a lot of big calls. And the Prime Minister and to some extent the Chancellor do have real power. But again, they exercise a remarkably small amount of that power. And a large part of how the system works day to day is a successful attempt by officials to mask from the Prime Minister what his real power is. There was one day I remember when I was particularly enraged by the, one of the many insanities in how the civil service works is that everyone basically has moved on after two years. So you suddenly have the person in charge of, you know, disabled education or something is suddenly put in charge of, you know, managing some part of GCHQ or whatever. It's completely insane. And everyone knows it's insane. And there was one official who one day was the document came through to the prime minister informing him of the shift. And I said to him, you know, you don't actually have to agree these things, you know, uh, over time, it's sort of, you know, in, in, in sort of way the Austro-Hungarian empire or something works. Over time, these things are presented as if you're not actually in control of them and you're just being notified of decisions taken by someone else. But actually, these are your decisions, just that the prime minister now never actually interferes with them. But you should just not sign off on this and say, no, I refuse to have this official actually moved. And so he did. And of course, it caused absolute chaos because the Prime Minister actually suddenly asserted his authority to turn down a personnel move. And nothing, absolutely nothing, is of more importance to the permanent bureaucracy than HR and personnel decisions. But again, these are things that uh, the MPs now don't even realise how the system works. And to a remarkable extent, the MPs are not actually interested anymore in how power actually is exercised in the system. Is it fair to characterize this as a deep state? I think it's it's fair in the sense of saying that there are kind of deeply entrenched institutions which actually practically control huge amounts of what happens with zero to very little democratic insight or even knowledge and understanding. That is unarguably the case. I think the problem with the phrase deep state is when it morphs more towards the Trumpian question of like, to what extent are there conspiracies going on? Now, of course, there are often conspiracies going on in the deep state, but I think you have to be careful to, dis- to, to disentangle the two things. The deep state is real. The deep state actually controls the vast majority of government, and most of the elected people have no understanding or involvement in what's going on. That's just a fact. 
But that doesn't mean, of course, that all everything you now read about this happened because the deep state or this is some kind of conspiracy by officials against democratic against democratic politics. That is not, you know, you have to treat each of those things on a case-by-case basis. And I think to some extent, therefore, the phrase can be problematic because, you know, you don't want to encourage the idea that there's this sort of generalized conspiracy of officials to thwart democratic politics. Because a lot of what's happening, right, you know, this is where it gets super, super confusing and difficult. Often what's happening is very good, sensible, intelligent officials with genuine public service who actually understand what the hell is going on far better than the idiots who are elected, actually trying to stop the idiots who are being elected doing terrible things. And that, that happened during COVID. You know, you could, uh, a lot of the things that were best in COVID was the deep state thwarting Matt Hancock, the elected politician, for the benefit of the country. You know, I could give us some distance to this issue by talking about Japan. So in Japan, the ministries are staffed by the top graduates from University of Tokyo and top universities. They're famously competent, but also very conservative and hidebound. And the politicians, you know, it's openly discussed that the politicians have very little power to override these powerful ministries. So you could take two different views about this. One is a anti-democratic view that, yeah, the power resides in unelected officials. On the other hand, you could take some kind of elitist view saying, yeah, but these people know what they're doing. <laughs> exactly. You know, there's a phrase, uh, one of the great things about Russia is the kind of cynical phrases that come out of it. And one of them is everybody's right and everybody's unhappy. And if you think about this problem, okay, the, as you say, there's, you can say on the one hand, at least in the term sense, the fact that the quality of the elected people is so desperately bad now across Western governments, that, you know, brilliant 30-year-old women who no one's heard of and no one elected actually running things in many ways is for the good, right? But on the other hand, the long-term consequence of this is also that these institutions just become incredibly stale and self-reinforcing and then almost nothing can change in any way, including by the deep state itself. So, one, you know, one of the things that would happen with me which was interesting, was that parts of the deep state would come to me to try and break a logjam that no one else could break. You know, they would effectively say, look, X needs to happen with, you know, whatever, the intersection of MI6 and the cabinet office or whatever. This entity can't fix it. That entity can't fix it. No entity can fix it by itself. The only person, the only force in the British constitution with the weight to actually change this is the prime minister. Because everything else is kind of cancelled out in this vetoocracy. So that's one of the other things I think, which is, which is now, uh, you know, which is part of this discussion about what the deep state is. It itself becomes so kind of stable and hard to shift in important ways that the only people that can break through it then are potentially some alliance of politicians with parts of the deep state, right? And this is, this is why I think, you know, as we were talking about before in the whole COVID thing, why was it? Why do you see things like the CDC just stay terrible and just keep making these catastrophic decisions, like on mass testing? Why could it not change? And one of the most fascinating things about the whole of the Western world—it's not just a British thing or an American thing—across the whole Western world, you see effectively the same story: that opposition political parties have a huge political opportunity repeatedly during COVID to stand up and say. What the hell are you people doing? 
why can't you grasp this bureaucracy and, for example, make it do, make it procure mass tests properly, sensibly, fast, and thereby help the economy and help the health system? These things are not in opposition. And effectively, no, no opposition party anywhere really demanded a radical shake-up of any of these kind of big bureaucracies in the CDC, uh, similar regimes in Britain, across Western Europe. They've all basically just stayed in place. And the political parties, the old media, and the old bureaucracies effectively have decided, you can see in their revealed preferences, we'd rather just keep going the way we are than actually bite the bullet and try and change and become high performance. Right now... Uh, you know, with the Republicans taking control of the House in the U.S., you, you're going to see some hearings where they're looking into potentially improper behavior by the FBI and interfering with the election and the NIH and funding research that may have had something to do with COVID pandemic or future pandemics. But on the other hand, it's not, I wouldn't bet any money that serious change is going to result from these hearings. Yeah. I mean, so far, I mean, just watching what's happened so far, you would, you wouldn't bet on serious change happening, right? I mean, it even seemed to me that the parts of the American system were trying to slow down the deployment of vaccines because they didn't want vaccines to come out sooner and help Trump. I mean, I've seen that and it seems plausible to me. Oh, I think that definitely happened. I think they delayed an approval or some data release basically because they didn't want to help Trump. Yeah. You mentioned MI6. So I have a question for you. Are intelligence briefings actually useful to the PM? Does the PM actually know more about the state of the world than a hedge fund manager, hedge fund billionaire, or Elon Musk? That's a fascinating question. So I've certainly read a huge amount of these briefings actually when I was there because I deliberately, you know, one of the reasons why we dumped Brexit in the first place was to try and shake up the system so they could deal with very big questions like pandemics, nuclear, nuclear issues and whatnot. So I spent a lot of time reading these things. I'd say it's a sort it's a funny mix. So on the one hand, the, there's no doubt at all that there are some very powerful capabilities that Britain and America in particular have. But in general the five eyes system that evolved out of World War II intelligence agreements. Very powerful capabilities which no hedge fund has, and which even people like Elon don't have, and which it's illegal for them to have, right? So if you're the British Prime Minister or the American President, then you know, you're doing, you have a kind of vast automated system to do what people like Mednick and Bismarck were doing, i.e. stealing their enemies' bins. You know, they would have spies that would go through the bins and pull out bits of paper and copy them and networks to distribute the intelligence from this. And Western states will have these Definitely powerful capabilities, but I'd say they're very badly aimed. You can improve the value of them by like 10x or 100x in various ways. The, prioritiz the prioritization process is appalling. Where these capabilities are aimed at in all sorts of ways is incredibly bureaucratic and incredibly bad. Also, I think in lots of ways, the bureaucracies have become very risk averse. You know, in various ways, partly in the States that happened post-Watergate and post, you know, all the investigations into the CIA in the 70s. I don't know. You could argue in various ways this was a good thing in the States, right? In, in terms of the, a whole bunch of the murky shit the CIA was up to. But it definitely has made a lot, large part of the system risk-averse. But I think the most important thing is that you have this amazingly valuable material in all sorts of ways. 
and very powerful capabilities, which you could aim far better than it is aimed, than they are aimed. But they don't connect to a wider system for interpreting the world. So a huge amount of the information that comes out of these things is kind of printed out, old school, then incinerated. It's not really used. It's not really learned from. Like, you know, the idea of, for example, taking the corpus of a lot of this stuff and then training a large language model on it or something. Like, if you were actually cutting edge and you had, you know, very aggressive and very high performance deep states working now, then you could imagine all kinds of fascinating things that you would now do with large language models, right, on lots of this material that, that intelligence services are stealing from around the world. But in fact, you know, the, the technology for the, the decision-making process around doing that is disastrous. Huge vetoes everywhere. Politicians don't care enough to, tr- to overcome the, the vetoes. So you, ha- so you have all this information and possibilities, but the, the kind of core deep state institutions that are trying to sense the world, make decisions about it, think it through and apply it and act mean that I would say the vast majority of possibilities are wasted. Yeah, regarding the LLM thing, we're definitely going to do that. The, the the picture you paint, though, is a little disturbing in that it, it sounds like there are the incentives maybe are not even that strong for the people running the Intel services to, to improve, to make their product better because the politicians, their bosses don't really care that much. Yeah, I think there's, I think on the one hand, there's the politicians just don't really care that much. There's just so much more interested in bullshit of domestic media things that are happening in the next few days. Also, though, the officials are not incentivized by the politicians to take risks. And that, you know, inevitably then filters down through the system. And then that becomes self-reinforcing, right? You know, people who at places like SIS or GCHQ or the CIA or whatever, then get discouraged because they think, do I want to sit around here for 20, 30 years, just having idea after idea crushed, operation after operation, not approved. Then when something does happen and there's a little bit of blowback in the media, everyone panics and collapses. So then you have a classic kind of vicious circle where a lot of the edgy people with interesting ideas end up leaving and a lot of the kind of HR lawyer types end up getting promoted. And that's, you know, that, that's bad. And then it means that when you end up in very in, in difficult situations like we are now with Putin and co, then the entities you're dealing with, in some way, right, you see this problem all the time with militaries every time a war starts. It's the same cycle, right? You have decades of peace before before the war kicks off, and then you start the war, and then you realize the whole bunch of generals promoted are completely useless, and then you need someone like George Marshall who then you know fires a bunch of them in in, in beginning of World War Two. You know, when when I would visit your house and we would have a serious conversation, we would put our phones outside. Mm. When I went into number ten, they would take my phone and put it in a little cubby hole to the left of the door when you come in. Yep. When I walked up to your house sometimes at night, I would see very strange looking minivans parked around the corner from, or just near your house. I'm curious, did you ever see any reports when you were in number 10 that so famously they monitored Angela Merkel's phone that you might, Americans did for a long period of time. Did you ever see any actual point reporting that British intelligence was actually in, intercepting interesting messages? Oh, so I would say offensive cyber capabilities are extremely powerful and anybody listening to this should be extremely cautious about what they use their phone for. But I don't think I'm afraid I can say anything about any particular things that I may or may not have seen. Good, good. Sorry. Didn't mean to put you on the spot with that, (laughs) but I was just curious whether... No, it's a good question. uh, Yeah. I just don't think I probably should answer it. 
No, that's good. By the way, we're close. We're approaching two hours, and I have a lot of more interesting stuff to discuss. But I want to be conscious of your time and not to tire you out too much. So let me know how many more minutes you think you want to go. I could definitely do like another half hour. Oh, great. Okay, perfect. Okay, you predicted to me well in advance that Liz Truss would blow up, quote, like a human hand grenade. <laughs> yeah. Why are so many politicians the worst people to lead countries? Well, I guess the system, like, what are they being selected for, right? I mean, essentially, what these old political parties select for, people who want to be on TV and who want to give speeches and who are happy to, to optimize for climbing the greasy pole of the party hierarchy. And that's about it. They're not selected for, can you actually build an organization? Can you actually do something of serious value? That's just not, that's not the kind of people who are selected for by the old political parties across the Western world. So, you know, that's who we get. I mean, Trust is a particularly extreme example. I mean, she's potentially, like, if there's one MP in parliament who is even more obsessed with the media and even less interested in the real world than the media, than Boris Johnson, it was Liz Truss. But what does it tell you about how the political system works? That's who the MPs turn to. Right? You have a complete meltdown of a government and a prime minister precisely because the guy is so completely absorbed with the media that he just completely loses grip of the actual government and the grip of reality. And the MP's response to that is not to go to someone who actually is going to take government seriously or and is going to prioritize actual reality over media reality, but they pick the one person who arguably is even worse in the same direction than Boris Johnson. And I think that, you know, that sums up a lot. So you have very detailed firsthand knowledge that this is the case, this very pessimistic scenario prevails in the UK today. Do you think this is a universal phenomenon that more or less the worst people are leading each of the Western democracies at any given time? I think it's, I certainly think it's a general problem. I'm not sure it's as quite as bad in, in, in some countries in the West as it is in, as it, as it has been in Britain in the last 20 years or so. But it does seem to me that this is a general problem. And I think it's partly connected to, you know, there's a few deeper things going on that have kind of pushed the system in this direction. That in that, you know, if you go back, say, 80 years, and you took a kind of regular set of people from a place like Oxford or Cambridge, a large fraction of them would say they're going to go into public service of one kind or another. Now, though, I think if you go to the smartest people who could do, all, you know, have very wide choices, tiny number of them now have any interest of going into politics or into the civil service. And I think that's, that long-term trend is part of what's work, working itself out. A huge number of these people now go into some combination of maths, money, technology, hedge funds, VC, et cetera, et cetera, right? The worlds that you spend a lot of time with. Very few of them go into politics or the civil service. And over time, I think that's partly what's responsible for the situation where you have simultaneously not just terrible quality of people at the top of political parties, but also clearly a much lower caliber 
average caliber of people in crucial jobs, you know, like at the Ministry of Defense or whatever it might be. Yeah, I feel like the best generalist talent these days is going into tech startups and such. Some still going into hedge funds and money management, things like that. But And of course, there's always academia and science. Technology really is sucking in, I think, a lot of the very best talent these days. Yeah, and it's it become sort of self-feeding, right? Because the more politics looks like a clown show and the more the media works the way it does and its kind of destructive way in general, but also the way it goes after individual people to try and break careers and destroy their lives. It also means that a lot of very able people who've got a lot of choices, well, oddly, the effect of it is the psychopaths who are just obsessed with being in the media are bothered by that and they still go into politics, right? But if you're, if you're a very able person, age 20, well, like a Patrick Collison type person, right, in your early 20s, you could go, okay, well, I could go into this world where it's very hard to have any actual control over anything. At best, I've got to kind of sit there playing appalling game, bureaucratic games for 30 years. And then maybe if I don't get unlucky, I get to some senior position where I can have some non-zero effect. Or I can go and start Stripe and build it and build a, you know, my own walled garden that can operate in a sensible way and I can hire great people, et cetera, et cetera. You know, this, because this choice becomes more and more self-reinforcing, I think. You know, this is a huge problem in America, right? You've got all these extraordinarily able people, a lot of whom in the say 1930s and 1940s would volunteer to go to Washington to help build things, to solve various problems. But now the General Groves characters are in the Valley doing different things. They're not, none of them, or very few of them were in Washington. It, it's a real problem for the way that government, the country is governed. Maybe an economist would say, this is great. We've got the most able people going where they really have leverage to create new things. But I think government obviously has huge leverage too. And it, it, there's a huge value for having talented people go into it. I think especially in, 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 like in a relatively small number of areas, right? So I think where it matters most is things like, you know, around thinking through nuclear war, through thinking through nuclear security, you know, even when I often say to people, who ask me, you know, what it's like in government and whatnot. And I say, well, always remember, if they don't take nuclear security seriously, then she'd never assume that they're taking anything seriously. And people laugh and kind of assume it's a metaphor, but it's, I, don't, it's not, I don't mean it's a metaphor. I mean it actually, actually is a statement of truth. And you know, if you look at the States, every few years, there's a kind of report on, on, on nuclear security and you find the same things over and over again, right? They're, they're, these places are easily penetrated. You hire some hot Natasha who goes in there and honey traps the people and they always fall for it. There's constant stories of nuclear weapons being left on the airfield overnight because they got this protocol wrong or whatever. So I think, yeah, in all sorts of ways, it's good that people like Patrick Collison are off doing Stripe and not in some you know stupid Department of Education job in Washington. But you do need a set of people like that in critical areas. And to me, that, like, that's where, that's the most worrying and dangerous thing that we have a combination of very dysfunctional bureaucracies and this talent problem on literally the most critical areas of bio defense, nuclear, et cetera, et cetera. And at some point, you've got to think you're, you're going to run out of luck with that. Yeah. I shouldn't digress into this, but the thing that's gotten me very worried lately is the, research on gain of function and creating much more dangerous viruses. I, it's still ongoing. And I think we're, we're playing Russian roulette with the 
future of the human species. But let's not go into that. You famously tried to hire quant-oriented misfits and weirdos at number 10. Mm. Give us an idea how that went. It went very well. I mean, we started, ironically, you know, when I wrote that blog on, I think it was comment exact date, but something like the 2nd of January or something, 2020. It turned out, of course, that COVID was already circulating. You know, COVID was already live in Wuhan at that point and possibly spreading to Western Europe by then as well. So I wrote that blog saying, you know, we need people in here and we need to we need to shake up the deep state systems, particularly things around what the EA community refer to as X-risk, you know, these kind of problems like bioterrorism and whatnot. And we started to recruit people then. Unfortunately, it, it wasn't quick enough to deal with the situation in January, February. But we did create an to date zones team. And I know that proved to be extremely successful, I know, amazingly cheap. Not very big as it shouldn't be, you know, that sort of thing should be small and elite. And then outside that, we recruited some other people as well. I mean, we generally encouraged people to just go through the mainstream systems rather than to do it kind of ad hoc. So a lot of the people, a lot of the weirdos and misfits are regarded by the civil services as normal employees, which is all to the good. The sad thing is a lot of the very, it goes back in a way to what we were just talking about. The sad thing is that a lot of the very smartest people that came in, most of them have left now. Because, well, by definition, the people with the greatest number of options as to what to do, some of them have left and gone to the valley, inevitably. Some of them have gone back to academia. Mm-hmm. People like that, you know, they don't want to just sit in rubbish institutions, watching things be closed down and, and just bad decision after bad decision. And so that's the sad thing. So I think it, the experiment, unsurprisingly, getting in very smart, technically able people and putting them in positions to, to look at data and advise on technical questions, unsurprisingly, that was successful. And parts of the civil service system welcomed it and were happy about it and thought it was great. But it's, uh, it hasn't been, uh, it hasn't kind of embedded to the extent that it needs to in the system. Uh, and in various ways, Boris kind of downgraded. I mean, ironically, Liz Truss, on her very first day, moved out the data science team from number 10 and took a whole set of decisions on her first day that just, without her even realizing, just destroyed her own power over the Whitehall system. Again, going back to this question that the MPs just don't really understand how power works. One of the things that she did was to remove the data science team from her own office on day one. So yeah, I think uh, overall, though, I'm a bit more hopeful in that, in that when I wrote that blog in January 2020, it was seen in Whitehall as mainly as a sort of, you know, sort of esoteric or, you know, one of Dominic's ideas. But within weeks, a whole bunch of senior officials had come face to face with the fact that they had no effective data system to deal with COVID. You know, in by the end of February, beginning of March, the data system for COVID, for the prime minister was the head of the NHS reading out numbers that had been faxed to him from a bit of paper and me scribbling them down on a whiteboard and then hitting times two on my phone and then writing the new numbers up. And because of what faculty AI did in building a new system for the NHS, very quickly a bunch of senior officials saw the difference between the old world and the new world of actual cutting-edge data science and actual proper dashboards, et cetera, et cetera. So I think one of the, one of the positive things about COVID was that, that a lot of the old system kind of then bought into the idea of upgrading technologically. Though, of course, actually doing that in practice has proved very difficult. 
yeah, I was always kind of amazed at how primitive the systems in the number 10 were. Like there really didn't seem to be any kind of seeing room where you could really engage with the entire outside world from that room. Yeah, when we started, there wasn't even a cloud system in number 10. There wasn't, there's, there's, there wasn't even a document sharing system. Like everyone in summer, in July, 2019, when we walked through the door, the way that number the, the key number 10 staff working for the prime minister worked was to email attachments of word documents to each other. That's how, you know, like not even rubbish businesses were doing that right in summer 2019, even a rubbish business could use Google docs, but, but the yeah. prime minister didn't even have access to something like Google docs, never mind anything else. Incredible. All right. Another quick question. If they listen to you, could you win the next general election for the Tories? Oh, my goodness. Well, I'd say Keir Starmer is bad enough at politics and is, is, like, is so essentially normal for Westminster in the sense that his reality is media reality. That I think if you had a top-notch campaign team working in number 10 now, then... You could definitely knock Keir Starmer very far off course. You could break his whole decision-making system. You could shake up the game. You could, you'd definitely have a good shot at shaking the whole thing up enough that you could make it competitive, for sure. And then if you can make it competitive, then you know the best team has got a chance of winning. I think the fundamental problem, though, is similar to the referendum as similar to 2019, that the problem in doing this would not be Keir Starmer. The problem would be that executing the actually rational best strategy would arouse the rage of the Tory MPs and the media so much that I just, I can't see, I can't see the government actually doing it. I think it's more likely that, that the current government will, will just sort of fail respectably in the sense of they won't try that, that they won't antagonize the insider world. They'll try and, you know, be seen as a civilized set of people by the insider world. And therefore, effectively, the government will not control the government. They won't actually be able to get very much done. They'll fail, but they'll fail conventionally and lose conventionally. And they'll all basically be happy with that. Because the alternative of actually trying to win would be seen as crazy by by the inside world uh it goes back to what we we're talking about right at the very start right what do you what are you actually optimizing for most of these people in politics are optimizing really for kind of getting along with the people that they see every day they're not actually optimizing for winning yeah that's why i said if they listen to you <laughs> could you win the next general election if they don't listen to you of course uh, there's no point to the extent that this is going to be a winter of discontent within the uk because of soaring energy prices and economic problems. Is that going to be pinned on the current administration or is the blame going to be spread across both parties? No, it's, it'll be blamed, I think, overwhelmingly on, on the conservatives and to a large extent, reasonably. I mean, you could definitely say that decisions taken before 2010, particularly on energy by labor were also very stupid, but you know, fundamentally, the public attitude is going to be, you guys have been here for 12 years and you should have sorted these problems out. And instead, you screwed up, 
you know, almost everything is screwed up the NHS. You can't even control a bunch of small boats coming across the, the channel. You put in Liz Truss, who blew everything up and cost us all a fortune in a few weeks. It's your fault. And so I think that's a re- fundamentally a reasonable judgment, right? The fact that Labour screwed up a bunch of energy things is interesting for the history books, but I think it's fundamentally reasonable for people to blame the Tories for the whole, for the mess. Yeah, so I think pretty hard for them to overcome that in the next general election. Very hard. I mean, very. I think impossible, barring a very odd approach that would, as I said, I think would be would seem pretty crazy. But certainly, any kind of conventional, any kind of conventional approach to government and any kind of conventional approach to politics from the Tories now is just going to run into the fundamentals. And the fundamentals are they're going to have been there for fourteen years. They're going to be asking for eighteen years in power and a fifth term in power. It's never happened in democratic politics in British history. Time for change is going to be extremely powerful. And therefore, to overcome that, those fundamentals, you'd have to have a very strong counter story. Uh, and that's unlikely to develop. I'm going to quote to you something you wrote on your Substack, which, by the way, I recommend to everyone who's enjoying this conversation. There's incredible essays that Dom has written over time on his Substack. The most recent one, I believe, it has a, a quite a bit of content about the American political situation. And let me just quote from what you wrote. And here you are describing the way that the consensus view might be changing among the Democrats. So the idea might be that Trump is preferable as the 2024 candidate because he's more beatable than DeSantis. The crazy MAGA candidates got whacked in the midterm. Maybe we'd have a better chance of holding the White House if Trump's the candidate. Yes, much of the Trump is fascism is a fraud. If DeSantis runs, I predict the Democrats and New York Times will forget the Trump is a unique threat to democracy line and pivot to DeSantis is even more dangerous than Trump because he's more competent, but believes the same fascist things. And if you're fighting fascism, then you're entitled to do all kinds of things, right? Like deploy the CIA to spy on campaigns or FBI to spy on campaigns and make sure those pesky Russians aren't stealing the election for their fascist ally. So maybe just react to that and tell us what you think is happening in American politics. So, I mean, I could, you know, obviously I could well be wrong about this, but I got the impression that if you go back a couple of years, I think there was a general kind of mainstream inside of you, which was Trump's finished. The January 6th thing means that like he's just done and we're all going to move on from that and Biden's going to be a success. They overrated Biden. And they wrongly thought that January 6th meant that Trump was not a viable candidate anymore. When they start to realize their mistake on that, the rhetoric then, you know, during 2021, sorry, 2022, is all kind of ratcheted up, right? Trump launched a coup. He's a fascist. It's completely impossible that we can let him have him back. It's the end of, it's the end of American democracy, et cetera, et cetera. So when I came over to the States, a few months ago, there were a lot of Democrats talking like that. But I've detected an interesting change of tone from them since the midterms. And my impression is that quite a lot of them now privately are thinking, actually, it's not so bad for the Democrats. It's actually better for the Democrats if Trump is the GOP candidate. 
because the research shows that actually he's much more beatable than DeSantis is. So, so obviously, a lot of people actually are genuine on the Democrat side when they say we think Trump is totally evil and we think he's fascist and it's the end of American democracy if he's president again. They believe that. But I think it's also clear that a lot of people say that, but actually don't, didn't believe it, don't believe it. Or they're just prioritizing something different and they're prioritizing the Democrats winning. And you, know, you can see this to some extent in the argument about there's an interesting internal Democrat argument before the midterms about should we, the Democrats, help the, crazy, the craziest MAGA candidates? So some elements of the Democrats try to help the worst, most insane MAGA candidates win the primaries on the basis that they'd be easiest to beat in the midterms. Now, interestingly, one of Obama's closest advisors, a guy called David Axelrod, said publicly, you know, I'm pretty uncomfortable about this and I don't think we should be, I don't think we should be doing it. You know, like if we're telling everyone that Trump winning is fascism, then why would we be enabling the fascists to win elections? This seems like a very dangerous gamble. But you can see people on the Democrat side now looking at it and saying, actually, this tactic was like short-term effective. We helped the crazy Mago, and the crazy Mago were indeed turned out to be much more beatable in the general election than the more mainstream Republican candidates. So I think possibly I've been too cynical, but my hunch is, well, I'll put it a different way. A lot of people who were saying to me four or five months ago, my God, Dominic, the situation's terrible. What on earth can we do about Trump? and stopping Trump becoming president again. A lot of those people have gone very quiet, and a lot of them now are, are saying, uh, 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 reading between the lines, I think that quite a lot of them actually will be happy if Trump's the GOP nominee. I don't know, do you think I'm crazy? Do, they, do you get the same impression from anybody? No, I think actually it's funny. The guys that I talk to, I think what you're saying is becoming kind of the conventional wisdom huh. that... Some of these guys are Republicans saying that we got to get Trump out of there because with DeSantis, we can win. And with Trump, we can't win. Yeah, exactly. So I don't think it's crazy what you're saying. Also, I think, you know, I've been talking to a few people actually doing market research on this, right? And what I've been told by people who are actually starting to research this in a serious way is that you can see these dynamics already in focus groups that, that you know, you can sit down with Republicans and Republicans will say in focus groups, no, basically, Trump did a great job on the economy, but he's still arguing about 2020. The country wants to move on. You know, my own sister's not going to vote for Trump again because he's still going on about 2020. Screw that. You know, if it was Trump versus Biden, obviously I would vote for Trump again. But, you know, if DeSantis goes for it, then, you know, DeSantis has probably got a better chance of winning. And the most important thing is to get the crazy Democrats out of the White House. So, yeah, if it looks like if DeSantis has got a better chance of beating the Democrats, then, you know, I'll go for DeSantis, even though they're big Trump fans, right? So I think, so if this is right, what I'm being told by people doing this research, then this will filter out as well, right? Because, you know, objective market research is objective market research. These facts will start to become clearer to people. And therefore, I think they'll spread around the Republican, they'll spread around both sides, right? So the rational response to this from Republicans is, Let's try and make Sanders' campaign as powerful and sensible as possible. Let's actually try and plan ahead so that if he wins, he can actually be a government that controls the government in Washington for the first time in many decades. But conversely, the rational approach to, from a lot of Democrats might be, well, how the hell do we help Trump win the nomination? Yeah, I agree with that. I don't know how actively 
Democrats are going to pursue that strategy of trying to help Trump win the primary. But I do think DeSantis is the more formidable candidate if he can get the nomination. Yeah, I think, you know, Trump made, as I said in that piece, I think Trump made a, 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 like a fundamental strategic error. Trump could have gone into the midterm saying, look at what I did on the economy. Look at what Biden's done on the economy. Here's the ways in which he screwed it up. If I was in charge again, here's what I would do to, to get things turned around, right? Now, that would tap into the fact that a lot of people, including a lot of people who voted against Trump, think that Trump actually did a good job on the economy. And Republicans think that's the single best reason to support him, okay? Instead of like making a, a mess, basing his message on what was just empirically something which got the most support from across the political spectrum, he spent his whole time arguing about 2020 election, which even his own fans don't want him to do. Right? His own, like, if you go back, democratic elections are basically always about the future. Okay? Look at the most striking example of this is Churchill in 1945. You can literally defeat Hitler and then be turfed out if the public think that you haven't got the best plan for the future. Right? Like Church so if that's true of Churchill after literally beating Hitler, it's basically you have to assume it's always true, right? But Trump kept arguing about 2020. No one wants to have arguments about 2020. Everyone wants to move on. So he really shot himself in both feet. Yeah, I agree with you. I do think the primary will be quite challenging for DeSantis if he decides to go for it, because, you know, debating Trump and dealing with all the Trump supporters is not going to be a cakewalk. Totally agree. It'll be tough. For sure. Tough. I don't know what kind of campaign he's got or what kind of people he's got. And, you know. This is sort of a where the right campaign, you know, sometimes like 1984 or something with Reagan re-election, you could say, actually, the campaign just doesn't really matter very much. He's just clearly going to win by a lot. And the campaign's not going to affect things very much. But other times, campaigns are important. And like, so there'll be big strategic questions like, to what extent do you attack Trump? To what extent do you not? How do you argue on... No, for example, here's an interesting question. One of the things that Trump did very well in 2016 was he didn't do what most Republican candidates do and promise to privatize social security and make huge cuts in Medicare and everything else. He rightly said, well, Republicans constantly say they're going to do all these things, but they never actually do it. So it's kind of the worst of all worlds. You end up supporting them in government, but you lose a load of votes from people who think you're going to do something radical. So Trump didn't do that. Similar questions will be faced by DeSantis if he goes for it in next year. And figuring out the answers to those kind of things, like almost everything you do in campaigns doesn't really matter very much in the end. But deciding how you handle a few very big questions ends up being the difference between winning and losing. Well, Dom, I've kept you a long time and I realize that you have to go and do some other stuff. So I appreciate your time on this podcast. I know there are a lot of British political junkies who wish that we had covered a lot of other things we didn't have time for. But in any case, uh, I wish you a Merry Christmas and uh, we'll, we'll be in touch later. Thank you so much. It's been such fun. And I hope you do your traditional Christmas Eve blog, which I look at every year. And I always know that that's the official start of Christmas. And maybe we could do this again in 2023 where we can watch what's happening with the, with the emerging primaries in 2024 campaign. All right. Thank you very much.